This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio. Hey, wait a minute. Again, not in the studio. COVID-19 days. My guest via Zoom, and I'm sitting here in my wife's home office, Shauna Ritter. She's not my wife, but she's my guest. Shauna, hi. Hi, Michael. And I'm sitting here in my home office. Shauna is a poet an author, an educator. Her website says simply, writer. I go back and forth whether I'm supposed to say poet and writer or just writer. It seems to include all the genres thereof. So, One of the things that I like about that is it's, such, it's so simple, there are no wasted words, which uh, reminds me of a lot of your writing. And we're going we're gonna to hear a little bit of your writing in a bit. Shauna has been nominated for a, a Pushcart Prize in the past. Pushcart is really big stuff. P- the Pushcart Press puts out poetry, short fiction, essays, and, as, in their own words, mm-hmm. literary whatnot. The founding editors for the Pushcart Prize, among them were Ralph Ellison, Anais yep. Nin, Joyce Carol Oates, and hey, get this one, our Buckminster Fuller. Those are big names. They are. I actually met Anais Nin back in uh, the very early 70s when I was at uh, State University of New York at Buffalo. I ran the literary series and was able to bring in an incredible assortment of writers and actually got to meet Anais Nin. It was pretty breathtaking. (laughs) Some of the winners of the Pushcart Prize have included Raymond Carver, Juno Diaz, and Tim O'Brien. So you're very you're, honored just to be nominated. You also have been awarded several Indiana Individual Artist Grants, is what they used to be called. They're now they've changed the name of it, but it's from the um, Indiana Arts Council, and they've been very supportive. Um, I was awarded one to do research uh, for the book of poetry that I wrote, which was about my mom's experience as an immigrant. Um, I went to New York to heavily research that, got to go to Ellis Island and um, dig into the archives at various places. And then I got another uh, award for a retreat to finish up my final revision on my novel and a couple of earlier awards as well. So they've been super supportive. The state actually sends you a check and says, do your research or do your writing or do whatever you do, painting, sculpting, how right. wonderful that is. But yep. you have to jump through a few hoops, I would imagine. Well, you do. You do. You definitely, it's competitive, but it's also really, um, it's really nice as a working artist to have your work recognized and supported in that way. And by the way, a good friend of this show is the associate director of the Indiana Arts Council, uh, that being Maya Michelson. You have put out a couple of books. One of them, just last year, a novel called In the Time of Leaving. And uh, before that was a chapbook, some of your poetry, called Stairs of Separation. Mm -hmm. The book In the Time of Leaving, Shauna, you talk about 
a Jewish mother and her daughters in Toledo. That's Toledo. Spain. We're not, we're not talking Ohio here. <laughs> That's why it's Toledo instead of Toledo. Toledo. <laughs> this was uh, during the Spanish Inquisition, right about the time of Columbus's first voyage to the West. Correct. What was going on that affected directly this mother and her two daughters? So in Spain, there was a rich history for a thousand years of a very large Jewish population that was really intertwined um, within the culture of Spain, just like there was a large Muslim population. And they worked together very closely. Um, there was a school of translators in Toledo, for example, where they translated works from the Arabic, works from the Hebrew, works from the Latin, working uh, together until a um, power-hungry, well, they're there had been some incidents before, as there often are, right? There had been what we think of as pogroms back in the early 14th century and other incidents. But things have been going well until um, someone named Torquemada, a real person, uh -huh. um, who was the Grand Inquisitor, appointed the Grand Inquisitor of Spain and encouraged uh, King Fernando and Queen Isabel to oust the Jews from their kingdom. Um, and so an edict of expulsion was written at the end of March in 1492 that gave Jews three months to either convert to Catholicism or get out and leave all their holdings, land, goods behind. This family who had been involved in the School of Translators and was a very um, influential family with the court actually, but still not saved from the edict that came down, the daughters um, went ahead and left first. Uh, taking with them um, a bit in secret some of the holdings of the family, the wealth that they could smuggle out in their dress. I could read the very first paragraph if you'd like, Michael, that sort of sets the stage for it. Hey, I'd love it. Go think? right ahead. So this is from the, from the very beginning of In the Time of Leaving. My name is Chava. My story is one of leaving, a litany of what I hold in my empty hands the scent of bread and the sound of horses in the narrow street, the fog rising from the river, the call of the muzine, the resonant bells of the cathedral, and two, the silence of the synagogue outside its walls. Inside, there is a shuffle of men davening, a whisper of women's song descending from the balcony, from the balcony a mumble of prayer. These are the things I remember, the shadow of candles on Friday night and the shape of my mother's hands as she draws them over her eyes, bends her head and welcomes the Sabbath bride. These are the things I thought would become memory, but never will. The mikvah I will never submerge in, the chuppah in the courtyard I will never be married under, my children, playing in the garden under my parents' loving eyes. Instead, I sew home into the hem of my dress and the fold of my cloak, into the sleeve of my bodice. I carry with me all that I can never return to. That is a word picture. Is this the daughter to whom the mother says, write everything down? That's exactly right. It's Hava, who's the older daughter, just 17. And her mother, it gives her as a gift when she leaves, gives her a quill 
and a small journal and says, write it all down. So the daughters you haven't had yet will know what the leaving was like. Did anybody ever say to you, write everything down? No, but I've been writing since I was a child. I don't have a memory of someone specifically saying that to me. It's a great question, Michael. But since I was a little kid, I made sense of the world by writing things down. Are you one of those people? And, and I'm one of those people, too. It, it, in my mind, something doesn't exist until I write it down, until I read it. You know, I think it exists, but I don't know it. Yeah. It's yeah. a little bit of a, so a little bit of a different, but I get what you're saying. It's something about the process of writing, not the process of editing and revision so much. So I separate those things out, right? But just Absolutely. scribbling, the process of scribbling things down. When you give words to a thought or an image, a landscape, um, a memory, somehow it takes on a dimensionality that then, as you say, makes it exist, right? It makes it real. And then you can look at it from all different angles. You have spent a good deal of time at Indiana University. Mm -hmm. uh, you were doing workshops of sorts, too. Right. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to separate out two different things because it, 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 there's sort of this amalgam of things that I was doing. So okay. when I was at IU, I actually worked at the Center for Evaluation and Education Policy, specifically at the Equity Project. Um, my title, I think, was Applied Research, Faculty Researcher. I never quite remember. But what I did was to look at issues of racial disparity in public schools, K-12. to and not only did I study it, but I went out and worked with teachers, school administrators, sometimes high school students, sometimes middle school students, all over the country to help people understand what equity meant in schools, what equal access to opportunity might really look like for students, and help to shape plans for school systems to try to create more equitable environments. That sounds um, like a huge job. It is a huge job. There are many, many amazing colleagues that I have all over the country that are deeply involved in that work. Many teachers who are deeply involved in that work and in school administrators. And as we know from the situation we face today, where we've seen uh, the eruption of police brutality and violence and where we see the continuing saga of inequities without people really understanding the roots of it. It's work that's ongoing. It's work that we're constantly in practice on. And um, it's really important work that people invest their lives trying to just move things forward a few steps. I did also teach a, some courses on uh, what used to be called multiculturalism, diversity uh -huh. in a pluralistic society. So courses that where I was working a lot with freshman and sophomore or education majors to try to give them some grounding in what what's called cultural competence or cultural responsivity, how you teach from various point of views to be able to create as many doorways and windows as possible for students to go in and out of. Doorways and windows. That's good imagery. Hey, you're a writer. 
I did spend years doing lots of workshops around diversity issues, equity issues, uh, um, trying to get people to look at internal internalized biases, institutional racism. I've also, on the counter side, done a lot of workshops in poetry uh -huh. um, and writing. So I still, you know, that's when you said the word workshop. So I think of it as a, I'm a facilitator. I like to think of it even more than I'm a teacher. I like to think of it as being a facilitator or an educator and um, being able to open up ideas to people in a way that they can make them their own. So whether it's a workshop about how to be more culturally aware or a workshop on how to get things down on paper, it's sort of the same tools in a lot of ways. Do you write every day? Pretty much. Um, I have to say I pretty much wrote every day and then COVID sort of threw me. It's really interesting because you'd think being home all the time, I'd write more, right. one would think. But I spend a lot of time looking out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Getting ideas, perhaps? I think so. I think there's a whole piece of writing that has to do with creating space and silence so that you can actually begin to hear things that you weren't hearing in your own head before. So yeah. I'm in the midst of uh, trying to finish up a poetry manuscript, a new full poetry manuscript, and I'm starting research on what might be a new book. I'm not sure about it. And I'm fiddling with some short prose pieces. So yeah, pretty much I, I write something every day, but I'm not in the deep involvement in a project like I spent years doing on the book, which I finished last year. Some writing I've seen that you've done is, as a matter of fact, on your website. You have a little blog. I call it an occasional blog. I want to uh, uh, read you something that I just saw on it in a post called The Innocence of February. You start out, and if I may be so bold as to read your work. I'd love you to. <laughs> Just a season ago, we stood around with friends at the maple syrup camp, boiling sap tapped from the trees surrounding us. It was chilly, and we huddled close to the fire, cooked some food, and shared dinner in the dusk. And then you go on to list things you had done just prior to that get-together when you were in New York City, and you write, all those things we did with innocence back in February, before we knew the world had become someplace dangerous. Powerful stuff. Do you enjoy just putting up what I would consider informal writing like a blog post? Very much so. Very, very much so. That's the kind of writing I sort of do on a daily basis. The blogs are not very polished. I may go back over and revise them. Yeah. Um, but they're really about capturing my thoughts. It was really nice to hear my own words back. It's rare that I get the chance to do that. So thank you so much. Is it, and isn't that something? It's only five months ago that the world was a different place and you brought that to, I was going to say the paper, but more the LED or LCD screen. <laughs> now you can read more of what Shauna has written there in shauna 
ritter.com. She is a writer. I love interviewing writers. Why do you love interviewing writers? Because I've been one, a professional one since 1983. Uh, my specialty has always been digging into people's lives. Uh, you know, funny thing is, a lot of people in my family say, you ask too many questions. <laughs> and that's the truth. That's what I do. I ask questions, both in writing and on this show, too. But um, writing, uh, to me, is the thing I was born to do. Mm -hmm. You felt that way, too? It was, it's my first language. I think of it as my first language. The notion of image and metaphor. What other languages? How about specifically languages from nations do you speak? Um, I speak Spanish fluently. Uh -huh. I, I'm married to someone from Spain. That's how, you know, in the time of leaving came about because of my own curiosity. I ended up, um, I actually met my husband back in 1976 in Sweden. Long story. But wow. ended up living in Spain. Spanish Jewish history at that point was pretty buried. Franco, so just to put you back in context, Franco had just died. There was not a lot of knowledge about the Jewish history of Spain, I would say. And so actually his family asked me quite a few questions. Huh. And as someone who grew up in the Bronx in New York, hearing Yiddish and Italian sort of interchanged equally in my neighborhood, I didn't think so much about, everybody was an immigrant. I didn't think right. about being an immigrant. Everybody's parents were immigrants. You know, it was just the way it was. But when I got to Spain, suddenly I was a fish out of water and um, people were very curious about the water I had come out of. So I had to begin researching and then I became really interested in the Sephardic culture, the Jewish Spanish culture in Spain mm -hmm. in the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century. And one day walking in the streets of Toledo, probably back in the 80s, I sort of just got an image of this young woman who later becomes Chava in the book, but I wrote some poems about it. And then years later, I wrote some journal entries as if they were in Chava's voice. Um, and then finally, when I left IU, which was extremely demanding full-time work, my life opened up a little bit um, in terms of time. And I started seriously saying, I think I'm going to write a novel about this. It took me a little while to convince myself being a poet first. And I taught myself, uh, along with taking some workshops, how to write plot, how to yeah. create sub arcs and narrative arcs and <laughs> character development, all those things you don't worry about in poetry. Your parents were immigrants. My mom. Where did she or they immigrate from? My grandparents on my dad's side, Austria-Hungary. Um, I'm Jewish. All, all my family is Jewish. So there was, they all came over escaping pogroms in Eastern yeah. Europe. And my mom was from Poland. I only have one word in Polish. Dziękuję, which is thank you. That's it. Because my mom said she learned, she taught me that word because she said she learned to say thank you to any of the soldiers when she would beg for chocolate or something. 1918 or 1919. She came over about 19 in the early 20s. You know, funny thing, Shauna, we think we're going through hard times right now. And yes, we are. But some of the hard times we're going through 
are almost as nothing compared to what some of our ancestors went through. I think of it as sort of, as I've looked over history, and, and not that I'm a historian, but having done the research, I researched the book pretty heavily. And so the scaffolding of the book is all historical fact, yeah. or what we know of historical fact. And there have been tides, it seems to me, of persecutions of all people. There have been tides of difficult times. This is not the first plague. Uh, we're living through a plague. There's been other plagues throughout the centuries. It sort of helps to get that perspective a little bit. But, you know, we are, you know, I, I said to my grandson, I have, a, my, I have four grandkids and my 10-year-old grandson, I said to him, you know, you'll be able to say I live through the great plague of 2020. Um, oh, lucky him. <laughs> <laughs> but just to try to, like, gain some perspective. I mean, we are in you know, from what a confluence of really difficult times, uh, politically, economically, and of course, with the health crisis of COVID. I am very privileged living out in the country. I have access to food and shelter and a way to communicate with people. Most of the world does not. So, you know, I recognize within the hard times, how much easier those times are for me. And even in my book for Hava, there were other hard times around her, but because her family came, she came from a very educated family, she had some place to go. Huh. She had the wherewithal to get there. And she had the ability to draw from her own spirit that had grown in a house where she had been taught that she was someone special. On Twitter, you have tweeted this quote from Barbara Kingsolver. Hope is a renewable option. If you run out of it at the end of the day, you get to start over in the morning. Do you ever run out of hope? You know, I'm a pretty die-in-the-wool optimist, which is probably uh -huh. why I put that up. I don't, I, I can get pretty, uh, where I'm sucking the straw and there's not much there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it splatters a bit, but no, by nature, by nature, I'm hopeful. By nature, I'm an optimist. By nature, I believe that good and love will triumph. You have written uh, for a number of magazines, Lilith, Fifth Wednesday, Georgetown Review. You even wrote an article for Bloom Magazine about poetry locally. Yeah. What did you learn? Um... At that point, it was really wonderful to speak to a mixture of uh, quote-unquote lesser-known community poets and some of the big IU poets right. and realize how much we all hold in common. Um, Kathy Bowman, who is a professor at, at IU, she just taught a great course on um, IU that was through the Rural Engagement Center for free, and she is a wonderful teacher. I took the course. That filled me with hope. I think what I learned, if I think about it, is that we all so much deal with the same stuff. You know, when I've had the privilege of working with writers like Mark Doty and Marge Piercy, um, Carolyn Forche, Marie Howe, Ellen Bass, um, I've been very, very lucky to be able to do some workshops with them to. Um, 
to work with them, we all struggle over the same words. We all sit down in front of the same piece of paper. We all try to make sense of the crazy world around us. So there's much more that we have in common than we don't. Do you agonize over individual words? No, I don't. I agonize over what might be thought of, I'm not musical, but what might be thought of as a measure as compared to each individual note. That's something I strive for in my own writing, Shauna. I want it to sound like music. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between writing and music? Is there any? I think there, I mean, I think there is. There's times I know that I, that I wished I was a dancer instead of a writer or a sculptor because it felt like there wouldn't be something between what I wanted to express and myself uh-huh. as a dancer because you're using your body as a dancer. So the right. expression seems to me, now a dancer would argue differently, I'm sure, seems to be if you're a musician, it's right there. You're not going through this very um, left-brained place where you've got to get things on the page in the same way. Yeah, there's no mediation. But I think it's an illusion. I think it's an illusion I hold as a writer because my painter friends, my dancer friends say, no, no, no. It's it's this it's not this natural fluid motion that goes from my spirit into this great movement that I create. You know, there's as much work um, involved because you get down an idea or you get it's not even an idea. Right. For me, it's more of an image or a feeling or a tone that I try to get down. And then later you begin the shaping. The same is true with any art form, I think. Shauna Ritter is the author of a novel set in the days of the Spanish Inquisition, back around 1492. The title of that novel, In the Time of Leaving, she also has uh, authored Stairs of Separation, a chapbook, her poetry. Uh, Can those both still be got? Um, in the Time of Leaving is readily available uh, in e-form and hard copy on Amazon, um, the giant. Right, that owns us all. Donna Ritter or In the Time of Leaving or go to my website. Um, Stairs of Separation uh, was put out by Finishing Line Press, and I'm going to be very honest and say I'm not sure if there's back copies still available or not. Um, I have a few. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine how valuable those are at this point. Interestingly enough, you were one of the first co-hosts with Daryl Nair for the show right on this station, WFHB, Interchange. Boy, that's about 123 incarnations ago, isn't it? I did it for many, many years and interviewed some just incredible, incredible people on that show. It was really wonderful. I love doing radio interviews, actually. Had the opportunity. I also did profile for WFIU for a while. Right. um, As a guest interviewer. Shauna Ritter is a poet, an author, an educator. Shauna, thank you so much for being on Big Talk. Michael, it was an absolute pleasure to have a chance to visit with you today. 